In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. Today is the second Sunday of Epiphany, and so we are during this season talking about the Lord appearing, the Lord making himself known. We see him making himself known to the wise men as they come as the representatives of the Gentiles. Uh, And we will end this season with him making himself known on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is our time to contemplate and to uh, rest upon how it is that God makes himself known to us, how he reveals himself to us, how he makes himself manifest to his people. He has made himself manifest. He is making himself manifest even now. He is revealing himself to us every day. He is showing us a new facet of himself if we would but participate and accept his love and his uh, desire to be with us and to dwell with us. The Lord's desire to be one with his people is talked about in many different ways through the scriptures. There are different analogies, forms, or figures that are used so that we can get at this great mystery of God dwelling with his people. One of the ways that the Lord describes his desire to dwell and be one with his people is through the image of marriage. Marriage is one of the central aspects of the way that God reveals himself to his people. It's not just a human institution. It's not just something that we do. It is a timeless sacramental understanding of God becoming man and the way that uh, man and woman represent God's love for his church. It is foundational in our understanding of who God is and how it is that we respond to him. The first thing that we have to understand, as uh, the prophet Isaiah shows us, is that God is the initiator. This is the role of the groom. The groom initiates love for his bride. The groom is the one that goes forth and says, I behold you and I find you good. And this is the role that God the Father plays towards his people. You'll see here in Isaiah chapter 62, he says, It is for Zion's sake that I will not keep silent. I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness. So it's God's love for his people. And of course, Zion is the place, it's the promised land, the place where God dwells with his people. It's the place where he will meet with them and that he will tabernacle with them. And so it's out of his desire for Zion, out of his desire to tabernacle for his people, that he would save them, that he would restore them, that he would make them holy, and that he would dwell with them. So it's a God's love to us that then we are supposed to respond to as brides. And for us to understand this relationship, we have to be able to all see ourselves and to understand our relationship with God as groom and ourselves as brides. Uh, now, uh, ladies, you have to uh, use your imagination a little bit when we talk about uh, being sons and heirs, right? We are all sons. We are all heirs through Christ. So uh, men, we have to use our imagination likewise to see ourselves as brides, right? These are figures. These are analogies. So in the same way that we're all sons and heirs, we are all called to be uh, brides of Christ and to be members of his uh, church, which is his bride, which we know has uh, uh, implications for all eternity. So the first thing is that God is the groom who loves his bride, who would make her holy, who would save her. 
right? And he is the one that goes and he prepares her. Though she has walked away from him, though she has uh, been uh, adulterous, though she has uh, walked away, the Lord uh, cleanses her, right? He adorns her and he uh, makes her beautiful and brings her to himself. And he says that he rejoices over her. As uh, the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And this is something that I'm asking all of us to spend at least this week really contemplating and exploring. We have to allow ourselves to be loved by God. We have to understand that God loves us and that it's his love for us, his perfect and beautiful love for us as he finds us good, as he finds us attractive, that we have to allow him to love us and to allow his love to pour over us. We have to experience the rejoicing over us that our father does, that the groom does uh, over us. Uh, sometimes this is the kind of thing that we dismiss or that we move aside and we say, uh, well, you know, yeah, God loves people and he loves all people, but we don't really allow that love to really soak through us and to really live and to explore and to be settled and contemplate that love. And so that is um, the first thing is to recognize God's love and to allow him to rejoice over us. The pinnacle of this uh, understanding of God being the groom and the church being the bride, of course, is found in the Gospels and the wedding at Cana. And then further in this kind of um, extra gospel, if you will, in the Revelation. The Revelation of St. John has a lot of characters of the other gospel uh, books. And so it's a kind of a, of a completion, uh, a way of seeing the end of that story of the, of the groom and the bride being married and the role of the church church is the bride and the whole salvation story and uh, the coming of Christ the second time. And of course, uh, we see in John's gospel where Jesus visits this wedding and he participates in the, this wedding in a real and wonderful and miraculous way. Just briefly about John's gospel. You know, we, we follow a three-year lectionary. So in year A, we read through Matthew, and year B, we read through Mark, and then in year C, we read through Luke. We're in year C this year. So after the season of Pentecost, uh, you know, through the bulk of the green season, through the summer and early fall, we're going to be reading, you know, sequentially through Luke's gospel. But here for the season of Epiphany for Lent and Easter, we're going to be kind of jumping around for these uh, particularities of these seasons. And John's gospel is used throughout all three years to uh, really put a fine point on some theological uh, issue. John's gospel is not like the other three. It doesn't uh, follow this uh, careful chronology. For instance, the other three gospels have one Passover and one time that Jesus goes to Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. Where in John's gospel, there's three Passovers. There's three times that Jesus meets and celebrates the Passover with his disciples. And so um, something different is happening without this kind of fixed understanding of chronology. There's this kind of spiraling of time and this um, theological underpinning that we see in a way of explicating these, uh, these ways that God uh, makes himself known to us and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we see this happen, this um, kind of theological underpinning at the very beginning of chapter 2 verse 1. It says, on the third day. 
And of course, when we see on the third day, our ears should be raised, right? Because any number in scripture has a special importance, right? The numbers in scripture are not random. Uh, the way that sometimes we understand numbers, they have meaning. And of course, uh, three is the number of heaven. It's the number of the Holy Trinity, right? And so whenever we see three, we're supposed to be seeing that the God is revealing, revealing himself and that he's, he's blessing the world. So on the third day, uh, just as Christ uh, rises from the dead on the third day, he uh, exposes or, or manifests himself to the world at the wedding of Cana. This is also three days after he has gathered the disciples. And so this is a key thing that has to happen before his ministry is made public, right? We've counted days now since he gathers the disciples at the River Jordan where he had met John the Baptist and been baptized. Not met for the first time, but met with him and was baptized. And then the disciples follow him up to the region of Galilee uh, where he is at uh, this city of Cana. Now, sometimes we get the impression that it's Jesus and 12 guys, right? Uh, sometimes that's the, the kind of understanding we have of Jesus walking with the disciples, but that's not what we are really reading in the scriptures at all. We're really reading that there's perhaps hundreds of people that are walking with Christ in his ministry, right? There's the, uh, the three, right? There's Peter, James, and John. There's the 12. Uh, there's the group of women that are with him, his mother being foremost. There's the 70 right that he sends out two by two so that's at least 120 that we read in the upper room and there's probably uh many more that are with him as well so this big group of disciples have come up with him to galilee and he enters into this wedding feast and uh his mother brings to his attention or as we might say in prayer she intercedes Right. Just as you and I intercede for one another. Right. We say, "Okay, Lord, uh, you know, my brother has a need. My sister has a need. Uh, The Virgin Mary intercedes for the wedding uh, party to her son. And then he addresses her. And it's really important that we understand that when he says woman to her, it's not the way that we think of it in English. When in English we call somebody woman in this way, it's uh, derogatory. It's not a kind way of addressing somebody. But in the Hebrew, this is a term of respect that he's using for Mary. The word that he's using here is a respectful one. So don't be alarmed. Jesus is showing uh, respect for his mother. He's honoring her position with dignity. And then he is uh, discussing with her about his uh, plan for salvation, which she has been part and party to this whole time, right? When in the Annunciation, the Archangel Gabriel goes to her, what does he do? He explains to her salvation history. He shows her where she's going to fit in and her role to play in salvation. So she isn't um, you know, just watching as some bystander. She is a full participant in this plan of salvation. And she and Jesus, of course, many times have had this discussion about how it is that he is going to um, you know, fulfill his hour. When he says it's not yet his hour, of course, he's always looking to, especially in John's gospel, his death in Jerusalem, right? That is always the goal in all of the gospels. Jesus is constantly moving to towards Jerusalem, towards his death. So when he says, it's not my hour, he's saying, it's not yet time for me to die. And then she says, do what he tells you to do. 
Now, he has these, uh, these stone jars that we see in our icon of the wedding at Cana. There are six jars, which the fathers say uh, six is uh, an imperfect number, right? It's one short of seven, which is a perfect number, three plus four, right? Heaven plus earth, perfection, fullness, wholeness. So this is the imperfection of the law. Jesus is fulfilling the law, making it complete. And there's these large stone jars for purification. We really want to understand this. This, um, this uh, rite of purification in uh, Jewish tradition and uh, in their religious rites. This is a center to the Exodus story and to the story of the nation of Israel as they go into the promised land. There is this, um, this idea that continually gets worked in the law between um, that which is profane or dirty and that which is purified and made holy and clean. And that is always being um, uh, made distinct and understood throughout the law and the prophets, right? The profane, that which is dirty, and that which is clean. And they're given several different ways of purifying, right? There's a, a baptism ceremony that's the purifying that the priests are supposed to do before they enter the tabernacle. There's the purifying that's supposed to take place in the house. And just like us, they had certain receptacles, certain tools that were set aside for washing, right? Places that were maintained in their cleanliness uh, so that that which is dirty can be made clean. This purification rite uh, would happen in several different ways for several different people at different times in the household, and they needed the right tool to do it. So the right tool was a vessel that could not be made um, profane. It could not be made ceremonially unclean. So what did they need? They needed something that didn't have joint, that didn't have crevice, right, where uh, dirt and mold could stick. And so they uh, carved out of solid limestone these jars. So they weren't fit together. They were carved out of one solid block on a lathe. And they would be turned until they were made into these beautiful jars. And this way uh, they could be kept clean. Of course stone is a perfect receptacle because it isn't going to take on the impurities that are within it. right? And it, it, at the worst you could re-lathe it. Right? You could re-cut um, uh, that jar. And then only in these jars would be put water. Now this is very important, right? Because these are purification jars that are meant only for water to be purified. This is the same, um, this is the same message, this is the same idea that's being given to us in the Virgin Mary being a virgin, right? No baby had entered her womb. It's the same idea that's given to us in the tomb, Right? It's made very clear to us that no one had ever entered the tomb in which Jesus is laid. These purification jars are only for water. Right? That's very important. Because then Jesus is going to transform now this water for purification into wine. And then we have to think about what is the relationship between this water that is supposed to make clean and the wine. Of course, the wine of Holy Eucharist is part of that cleansing process that we undergo spiritually. So there's a spiritual cleansing in the participating, uh, participation of Holy Communion. There's also cleansing and God celebrating over His bride. So the celebration between bride and groom is purifying. 
That's important. That God would celebrate over us. He would rejoice over us. And when we recognize God's rejoicing over us, we are purified and cleansed. Because we're renewed in our understanding and in our relationship of God's salvation for us. See, we can't really participate in salvation if we don't really believe it. And we can't really believe it if we don't celebrate it. Or if we don't understand or participate in God's celebration and rejoicing. So the purifying, the washing, has been turned into rejoicing and celebration in this sacrament between the groom and the bride. You'll notice also in the icon that in the ancient world and still in in much of Eastern Christianity, marriage has a slightly different um, emphasis as far as the sacrament of marriage goes. In the Western rite, the sacrament is um, contractual. There's vows, right? I make a promise and you make a promise and we have a we have a a contractual agreement about what each of us is going to do. And in a more ancient Eastern rite, the bride and the groom are crowned. They're crowned as king and queen. So they get set aside to be a king and a queen of a household, to rule a household in the same way that our king, God, reigns over the world. And so we're entering into the same relationship in the house that God enters into with his people. When he would be king and he would make us his bride, the queen of heaven. So that's a very different understanding, isn't it? That's one of participating with the groom, the king, and his saving and his ruling over and his rejoicing over the world. And that means that we've got a part to play. Because a queen, a bride, has a very important role in the house. She has a very important role as hostess to welcome and to participate and to share in the celebration and the feasting and the the, the ruling of the household. And this is what St. Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians is is trying to get across to the Corinthians, you know, over and over again, right? He says, you've been set aside, right? You've been purified, you've been made clean, you've been made holy to do the work of holiness, to do the work of God, right? You're not set up on a shelf, you're not set aside, it's not, oh, you've been saved and now everything's done. There's a role to be played, there's work to be done. And he says, the Holy Spirit has been given to you, not for you to show it off or not for you to say, oh, I'm I'm done. But the Holy Spirit has been given to each of us. Why? So that God would make himself known through us. He says it is the same God. This is verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The manifestation of the Spirit. The Spirit is made known, right? There is an epiphany of this Spirit, and each one of us 
For what? The common good. That is, we each have a role to play. We each have a role to play. Each one of us, individually and distinctly, have a role to play in the church. And when we play that role, for the common good, God makes Himself known to us as the church and to the whole world. He says, all these, all these gifts that are given, whether they be tongues or knowledge or healing or the working of miracles or prophecy, any of the things that are done in the church, right? Any of the work that's done by the Spirit is empowered by God who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So again, it starts with God, with his will to make himself known and to dwell with his people, to make them holy so that he can make himself known to the world and the plan of salvation. And he would give each of us a role to play as his bride in his kingdom. So God makes himself known, reveals himself to us. He transforms us as his bride so that we can do the work as hostess and queen in the kingdom of God and in the church. But will you celebrate it? Will you rejoice? Will you be glad? Because the only way to manifest that spirit is in gladness. At a stoplight, in the doctor's office, at school, in the market, wherever you are this week, when we rejoice in the Holy Spirit, and we agree to be His bride and His queen, to bring forth His wedding banquet and celebration out of His love for His people, we are in the church, we are in His love, we are in His kingdom, and He is made known to the world.